This is the Friendship News Hour book review of Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, chapters 5 and 6, History's Biggest Fraud and Building Pyramids. My name is Frank Huerta. I am joined by Alex Kenzie. Hello. How you doing? Doing well, man. Enjoy these chapters very much. Very interesting. Before we get to those, let me just recap where we were at. Mm-hmm. In the past uh, podcast, we did chapters two, three, and four, and basically, basically told us that uh, seventy years or seventy, seventy thousand years ago, sapiens left Africa. Forty-five thousand years ago, we crossed the sea to Australia. Uh, we went through a cognitive revolution, and uh, there are theories as to why nothing was really concrete. Um, but in any case, we separated from our, uh, brethren or other humans, uh, and evolved to survive and thrive and prosper. Um, our early days consisted of straight foraging for food, living off the land, uh, living very nomadic lifestyles, not really settling down anywhere. And then as we decided to progress into the world, we are undoubtedly responsible for the death of 90% of the megafauna in Australia, uh, as well as countless other species extinct due to our presence in their native land. So that brings us to Part two, the agricultural revolution. Starting with chapter five, history's biggest fraud. What'd you think of this chapter? I liked it, man. It, it was really interesting to see, like to hear, really interesting. I say that all the time. I need to stop saying really interesting. It was very informative to find that uh, we didn't domesticate wheat it domesticated us, which I thought was a really cool way to like look at it and think about it. And it's true. Like we, we went from moving from place to place, uh, you know, every couple of weeks or, you know, small little settlements to now being, you know, staying in an area where it was fertile, where we could grow crop and, and we would live there. And, and in a way, like we became dependent on those things instead of hunting and foraging and like making our own way it was like, well, I really hope that it's, it's rainy and sunny and in all the right ways this year so that we can eat and live. And you, you would think that as like we become more of like a domesticated species that that would be for the better, but it almost, he almost makes the argument that it's for the worse, which was cool. Yeah. So they, so they start talking about, um, how the agricultural revolution, meaning, uh, sapiens who were able to, cultivate the land that they lived to grow whatever native grain uh, was there. Started in uh, about 9,500 to 8,500 BC in Southwest Turkey, Western Iran in the Levant. So that was the first area where uh, humans cultivated land, domesticated the native wheat and began growing their own food en masse. Um, and that's no sig- insignificant feat at all. I mean, it, it, it essentially 
revolutionized how we lived then, but it also lit the fuse of how we would live 10,000 years into the future. Mm-hmm. And one of the, one of the facts that I took away at the beginning of this chapter was that, that 90% of the world's calories, the, today's calories come from the plants and animals that we domesticated between 9,500 and 3,500 BC. On top of that, there have been no new plants or animals domesticated in the past 2000 years. So everything that we eat today in some part of the world was domesticated between 9,500 and 3,500 years ago, Um, which is also significant because the author makes the point that the theory that agricultural, the agricultural revolution started in the Middle East and spread is sort of not true because this was a learned behavior for almost every culture of humans that lived during that time, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You were able to tame wheat in the Middle East. You were able to tame rice in Asia. You were able to uh, tame um, mullet, millet, millet, millet Millet. in Africa, Um, all right around the same time. So so this was a very human phenomenon and the the question being raised is you, you know why why did we do this why it's not that we didn't know how to grow these things that that's not the case why did we decide that we were going to stop foraging for our food and then begin growing it in mass for whatever community we belong to. And I think the main reason given was that um, the thought was that you were able to grow more food so you didn't have to rely on luck or being able to find the food naturally. You could manipulate the food so that it's there for you. And the problem that came with that is when there was a surplus of food, everybody ate and everybody survived better. So more babies were born. So more food had to be grown. And it was sort of a snowball effect until we didn't even recognize what it meant to be a forager or a hunter gatherer. This was all we knew. And we were going back. Mm-hmm. So it's like crazy. You know, that's, that's the start of where you know, we are today. And more than one time, the case is made that maybe you could say that a forager, hunter-gatherer human being was happier than whatever peasant or farmer or rice picker mm-hmm. that might have followed that person. For sure. He, he definitely references that. And I thought like the most astute thing that he said uh, in this chapter, in, in chapter five, was that a evolutionary success is based on the number of copies of its DNA. 
So the, the success of a species of a people is based on how many people live and continue to live and survive. And although we might not have had as, as good of a life, as good of a diet, uh, as we might have had quality of life when we were hunter and gatherers, we were able to, like you said, set up communities, always be able to feed people and and live and survive in in places where we never maybe could have before, or like the weather could have taken out a whole group of, of a whole clan of people. And uh, what he also references that child mortality during this time, uh, it soared. One of every three children died before they were twenty but there were still so many births because we were able to stay and live and reproduce. Even though the conditions sucked, we were still pumping out humans. And they referenced Jericho. At around 1300 BC, Jericho supported around 100 people. By 8500 BC, it supported 1,000 people. Although they suffered in like cramped, cramped living and disease and suffering and all the, you know, terrible quality of life probably in comparison to when they lived in a group of 100 but they were able to grow. Yeah, and not and not to mention that the the food sources that we were growing in the ground, this wheat, mm-hmm. was and still is like super not good for us. Like very, yeah. n- it lacks a, a ton of nutrition. It doesn't provide very many nutrients at all, um, and. You know, like you mentioned in the beginning, we domesticated Homo sapiens and not the other way around, particularly if you're going to look at success in the, in terms of replicating the DNA or the, I guess, what is, what is a plant made of? Is it made of DNA? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess, suppose. I don't know. And chlorophyll. But, but chlorophyll. we'll use that metaphor here. You're replicating the DNA of wheat. Mm-hmm. A million times over, you know, who's got it better? Humans are wheat, right? Well, the wheat is, has taken over. There, there is 870,000 square miles of wheat worldwide. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, reading, uh, paraphrasing from the book here, uh, the agriculture revolution was a trap. Wheat and grain were not nutritious and bad for oral health, but wheat and grain fed a lot of people. More people could survive, which made the population swell and deepen the dependence on wheat. So it was a catch-22, and we didn't know how to break out of it. Um, and, you know, it, it, it brought up more of like a larger life lesson, which is that when you do these sort of things, right? Like in that time, having a bunch of food was a luxury. Yeah. Right. Having a surplus of food was a luxury and then luxuries become necessities and they spawn brand new responsibilities. So it touches on a lot on the peasants and farmers who were forced to grow food for superiors while they yeah. were left with very little, little to eat themselves. Um, and it so, was the beginning of the class system. Agriculture right? brought the class system to modern day life. Right. And, and nobody, you know, nobody at the time, you know, I, I guess you couldn't blame them because they couldn't have foreseen 
what a dependence on wheat would bring, right? The, mm. the, the strict dependence on one food source, what, what that would mean for the world. And like you said, it, it, it involved, you know, the forging of, of these hierarchies because, you know, you, you're going to have hierarchies regardless of any, of anything, right? Unless you're in a tribe, like we mentioned in our previous episode, you know, 150 people, it's about, about all you can really form a, a personal relationship with. So when you get bigger than that, you're going to have to form hierarchies. And if you know a way to feed your nation, your group, your community, your kingdom, whatever, then, you know, you're going to use your power to make sure that that happens come hell or high water. Yeah. And, and then, you know, Mr. Harari goes to say that in order to do this and, and survive successfully with all these people in groups, you know, over 150. And when you get to, you know, Jericho where you have thousand people, um, the, the best way to do that is to, I mean, in, in a way use the human imagination to build a network of mass cooperation. So whether that's, you know, religion, laws, whatever, what have you, that is how you control or govern over a large group. And that's, that's that with the combination of the class system brought order in a way. Yeah. That, that's, that's right around where chapter five ends talking about yeah. the, the drawbacks of the agricultural revolution, what it really meant as we know it today, what it really meant, right? Taking all that history in at one time, you know, what, what can we decipher from that? And I think the consensus is that it wasn't great, but at the same time, what it offered was the best chance of mass survival for the species. And, right. and then it begins to talk about, it begins to talk about the, I guess you would say modern day sapien. Well, we'll, we'll get in chapter six. Chapter six is called building pyramids. It starts by talking about, um, up until around 1500 AD, uh, 2% of the earth's livable surface housed all of the sapiens or the majority of them. Right. Mm -hmm. So they all lived in a very small concentrated area in Europe, Eurasia, uh, the Middle East, some in Africa, you know, some in Asia, but, but, but for the most part, it was all in, in a concentrated area. And then, um, it talks about, it, it uses that to kind of coincide with the fact that in 10,000 BC, so we're going way back, 10,000 BC, there was about six to 8 million foragers. You fast forward to, um, one AD and there's 250 million farmers. Um, and then, and then it, uh, sort of goes into what this agricultural revolution was able to do culturally, right? Because it, it, it talks about the things that we're able to make room for when our basic needs are met. Yeah. For example, 
we can worry about a class system. We can worry about economics or religion, or we can worry about any one myth, any one fiction, any one thing um, that we can concern ourselves about when we know that we don't have to spend all of our energy to just merely survive. And it kind of goes into, it, ta- it touches on the agricultural revolution again, about how a, a few people back in the day who had their needs met, who were part of the privileged class, were, you know, they were the ones that made history. They're the ones that we talk about. And the majority of people worked to feed those people. And, um, so it made that point, which was kind of neat. And then it started talking about probably the most interesting topic I think that we've touched on yet. And that's an imagined order, Mm -hmm. this imagined order, this myth, if you will, if you want to take, um, they used, gosh, dang it. I didn't write it down. Uh, Hammurabi. Hammurabi. Correct. His code. There's 282 rules to live by. Really quickly, I just want to say, so the chapter is called Building Pyramids. And um, although I, he's, he kind of references Egypt and, and, and these different cultures that had pyramids, I think what he's really talking about um, is like the construction of social classes. Um, you know, at the top of the pyramid, you have the high class, you know, the ones that they're rich, they're powerful, they're influential. They're the ones that probably get the credit for most of the ingenuity during this time. Um, but the, towards the bottom, towards the base of the pyramid, you have the people that really did the work. Um, and that's like the low class underprivileged, um, the majority of the people, the bigger section. So I think that's what he's talking about. And that, that's the parallel I drew at least. Uh, but so Hammurabi, uh, was, uh, as it goes, given this knowledge from their God, uh, and he basically spoke to Hammurabi directly and said, these are the rules to live by very similar to like a Moses and the 10 commandments, very similar story. Um, Moses had 10, Hammurabi had 282. So one God seems to be a little bit more specific. (laughs) Um, but his, his, it's not just as simple as thou shall not kill this. This was a way for people to live with actual laws. So it's almost like if you took like the 10 commandments and you mixed it with like the constitution altogether, and there's, there's crimes based off of class and gender. Um, the, the way they looked at it is that within his thing, there's two genders and three classes, obviously uh, male and female. And then you had the nobles, commoners, and slaves. Uh, this was the whole culture. And uh, for example, a, a noble person could beat a woman and kill, if she was pregnant, kill her baby and for doing so, his crime would be five shekels if the baby died. If it was a slave woman, it would be two shekels. If a slave woman or commoner struck a wealthy person, a noble, they would be either put to death or owe 200 shekels. So it, it sets up this whole structure of like, if you do this, it's this. If you do this, it's this. It's, it's a fear-based kind of thing, I, I guess. Um, 
what's another, and then uh, you kind of also see like an eye for an eye in some of these laws. So one of them was even for nobles, if as a nobleman, if you hit or beat or somehow kill another nobleman's daughter, your daughter is then killed. Um, so it, it brings in these like kind of social like mannerisms or how to act, I guess it's, it's, I feel like it's like one of the first times you see that at least like written down, uh, like a code of ethics, how to be, um, but from there he, he kind of, he kind of goes to compare it to like the declaration of independence in a way too. For sure. I mean, he, it, it's worth noting that this code of Hammurabi was, was written in like 1700 BC. And I think, I think that's before the text of the Bible. I don't know. The Bible is just a big compilation of a whole bunch of texts. It's kind of hard to date the Bible, but um, I mean, this was, this was the oldest like legal text um, that we know of. And when he compared it or used it in juxtaposition with the constitution, he was picking apart the words, right? So like you just gave examples of this code of Hammurabi and, you know, if you killed this class of woman who was pregnant, this was your punishment, what have you. Brought down by God, right? Divinely interpreted and then spoke out to the people. And the constitution will say, that we believe these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then the author breaks down that first part of the constitution in biological terms. And basically just saying that like humans have evolved and will seek pleasure you know, he, he, he boiled it down to some weird, you know, biological essence. But the point of that was that there are no such things as rights really. Or liberty or, or that everyone's made equal or freedom. Right. Because the, what is it that makes us equal? Because that was his other point mm-hmm. was like, well, we're not equal. I mean, not really. If you, if you take a 10,000 foot view, you could group us all in one area, but we're certainly not equal. And so what is it that makes us equal? Well, it's our creator. So to, to even believe in the constitution and what it represents, you would have to believe in a creator because if not, then it, I mean, the whole thing goes upside down. And if you were to bring Hammurabi and Thomas Jefferson into one room and ask each one of them who was right, they'll probably both say that they both were right in what they wrote because because it wasn't them saying it. It was the myth saying it, right? Mm -hmm. It was higher than themselves. It was bigger than themselves. And so the only reason that our democracy stands today the only reason that the Babylonian empire would abide by these rules was because that everybody believed in this myth, right? Everybody bought in 
to this fiction, you know, and he made the point that like, and he, he, he doesn't use the word fiction. The author uses the word uh, or the phrase imagined order. Yeah. Uh, and, and then that's essentially what it is, right? What do we call American democracy? We call it this big experiment, right? Or this great experiment. We have enough humility to where we understand that what we're doing hasn't been tried before. And it's also dependent on the belief of these values and these pillars of American democracy without that belief in this myth, in this imagined order, none of this works. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, crazy, interesting to think about it. Right. I mean, you, I guess we all know it, but, but, but when you, when you look at it and you bring it up through the ages and these giant institutions like the Catholic church or Islam or, or, uh, Judaism, right? Like these things cannot exist without millions of people believing in it. And he kind of doesn't really blur any lines between um, believing in, you know, Jesus Christ as your savior or, you know, any other religion. He, he, he doesn't blur any lines with believing in the state of France or the Euro as a currency, right? We call it the U S dollar fiat currency because it only has the value of which we all believe it has, right? It's not really backed up by anything. So it basically saying all of this stuff is imagined. It's all imagined. And it's cool. It was cool. It was cool to hear because I remember way back in 2016, I had this thought and I don't know if it was cause I was reading this book or not. I don't think so, but I, ha- I was in, I was in a little bit of debt and I was really upset about it. You know, it was stressing me out. And then one day I had this thought, I was like, shit's not really real. You know, mm-hmm. it was thought up by somebody. It's just an idea. Now it affects my life because we all collectively believe in it, but to have that thought, it was just so freeing. It was just like, oh, what are you worried about? You know, like it's, it's not, it's not really something that truly matters when you, when you get deep down into it, right? You know, you, you can make this worse or you can make the situation better, but at the end of the day, it's imagined order. Um, do you find it necessary or do you find it interesting that things like religion, things like believing in a government, believing in money, uh, like a control system as imagined as it may be Harari makes the case that it's almost necessary to survive and like prosper for any amount of time to say that it's necessary it for me is kind of a stretch because it's like it's necessary now but that's just because of where we're at mm-hmm. right like that's just because of where we've come that's why it matters. But like any, any society that thrived through the last thousands, ten thousands of years, like seem to have these, these ideas, like these, these things that these myths, these common things that they can latch on to come together with and thrive together under, whether it's laws, religion, like whatever the system is, it seems like something is nece- something about that is necessary. Well, yeah. 
the author's the author's words is that imagined order is the only way that large groups of sapiens can cooperate effectively. Exactly. I, and that, that kind of struck to me, right? Because mm-hmm. like you said, is it, is all that, is all that necessary? And it's like, you can say it is or isn't, but we have the blueprint, right? We know what it looks like. And I think we can understand or at least appreciate that these things are incredibly potent, these imagined orders, these, you know, these decrees of how we should go about our lives. Um, you know, people are, are prone to violence when you attack one or the other. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, like, I do think it's very, I do think it's really cool that we're able to develop these kind of things and more, more so than that, that we're able to want to cooperate. But to that effect, you know, he did, the author did mention that when we're born, we don't really have any of what we have now as far as an imagined order or a belief in one economic system over another, right? It's all culturally kind of imprinted on our, on our brains. Mm -hmm. So not only did one person or a group of people have to think of this thing, but it had to be believed by so many people through so many different years um, that, you know, I don't know that, that that's just, it's a mind boggling thing to think about. The, yeah. the, this behavior of ours. And I kind of like how he rewrote the life, liberty and pursuit of happiness line too. Like he, he, the way he rewrote it said that if it was true to, to what the world and, and what evolution and everything has really been, that that line should read, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men evolve differently, that they are born with certain mutable characteristics. And then among these are life and the pursuit of pleasure. Hmm. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's so much so, better put. Oh, <laughs> uh, well maybe, I, I mean, it kind of goes to the, to his point about, you know, it's, I, I guess, so you could say it's better put, but you're looking at it purely from a biological perspective as he described it. So mm-hmm. is that good that we look at things with just that biological perspective? I think you know, the point he was trying to make was that the, the reason that we believe in something like the constitution is, is, is because we, at least when it was created, believed in a creator, mm-hmm. you know, and it was obviously shaped by Judeo-Christian values. And, you know, th- this chapter talks a ton about, um, the romanticism uh, like the romanticism of consumerism um, or just romanticism in general. It's, it's a very Western cultural kind of deal. So, so this constitution that we all believe in, you know, it falls right in line with our beliefs in a creator and our, and our you know, a romanticism with whatever these cultural pillars are that are expressed in this case, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Um, and, you know, when you think of those words, 
I think at least for me, it, it goes automatically to like straight Patriot mode. You know, I think of founding fathers. I think of, you know, this country and all of the glory and all of the great things that we've done. And, and, you know, the hyper advancement of the, uh, our species, because this country was exists, you know, that is where my mind goes. And that's what the author's point is. It's like, well, it's only because you believe in a myth and that myth is America. Right. If we believe yeah. we're all equal, in essence, you can form like a stable society based on that would be the idea. Right. Right. But those words, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness were written by slave owners. So like even they, like to an extent had to know that was kind of bullshit. Like they, they didn't think of their slaves as a, as a, on their level, as far as like a person at all. Um, they weren't even freed for another hundred years, damn near, uh, you know, and even today, like I, you, it could, the argument could definitely be made that um, the pursuit of happiness is easier for for some than it is for others, uh, based on whatever you know. That's a whole different argument, but um, I, I feel like these guys had to know that that it was a little bit bullshit, but that like this was what was necessary to be free from England and to bring people together to fight them to form a militia and fight against the greatest army in the world at that time. No, no. You think they're just delusional? Slavery was and still is a worldwide practice. Mm -hmm. Those men wrote the document that inevitably ran slavery out of this country and then most parts of the the developed world. No way. Totally disagree. Abraham Lincoln did that. (laughs) <laughs> he, he wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. That's what that document is. Correct. Saying that all men are created equal when you own slaves and, and treat them like shit is not, that's not what led, in my opinion, to them actually being free. There is only one document in the history of the world that has inspired and motivated people towards freedom and that is the constitution of the United States none of what has happened in the past 250 odd years of this country good bad or indifferent could have happened without that document as the backbone for sure you could argue that it was that it was Abraham Lincoln but he he came way after he was using the tools that he had as as an American so I mean, if you want to, if you want to talk about something like that, do I think that they thought it was bullshit what they were writing? Maybe did did they think that they were writing the document that would one day free all people? Maybe that might be my romanticism peeking out a little bit. <laughs> um, but but no, I, I I don't think that, and you know. Do you think they just didn't think of slaves as people, as men on their level? I think that they thought that that was not the battle for them to fight at that time. I mean, think about it. They just defeated their rulers, right? They themselves were just freed. I don't think that attacking the number one 
labor force of the country was the first thing on their docket. But if, if they're for freedom, why would they not take the steps to free all? Like, why is it okay for them to break away from the King of England because they didn't like that he was taxing them and, and governing their lives day to day? But yet it's okay for them to buy humans and force them to work for them and grow entire economies off their backs, but yet say that we're all equal. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with the hypocrisy mm-hmm. of it all, right? I mean, it exists. Yeah, yeah it's just, it's interesting to me. I, I looked up quick, 17 of the 55 delegates that signed the Constitution owned a total of 1,400 slaves combined. And of the first 12 presidents, eight were slave owners. Yeah, I mean, if, if, it, if it didn't inevitably lead to all men being free, all women being free, the pure advancement of freedom mm. up until we got now, which is like, you know, I mean, I'm not saying freedom is overboard, but I think our idea or our acceptance of what freedom is, it, it's a hyperdrive. We don't tolerate any, any bullshit, right? And I think it's easy for us to like armchair quarterback what it meant to be those people in that time. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we have the slightest clue. Moreover, um, you know, going off a little off topic here, but I think the story of our, you know, our, the story of the black people in America who are descendants of slaves and the mistreatment thereafter when they were freed really have like the most beautiful story because any black man standing today, if they come from a lineage of slavery, their ancestors were not free and they are. And that to me is like the most beautiful thing ever. I mean, like what greater story do you want? More recently than anybody in this country, probably, unless you're an immigrant from somewhere else where this happens, you are a descendant of somebody who didn't start off free in this country. And now you have the ability to do whatever you want and the greatest country to ever exist. And I think that is just, I think that story has been robbed or that message has been robbed. I think it's been diluted with just a bunch of nonsense. If you ask me, um, anyway, I jump off my soapbox here. I got really off topic, but sure. Yeah. What I was really, I'm not saying like tear down Mount Rushmore, take change our money. I'm, I'm not even saying that. Like, I'm not trying to bash on these founding fathers. Like, at the time they they did do something and they set up they found out a foundation for us to all be here and live here um whether we became free or you're not free at different times i guess what i'm just saying is i feel like when they wrote that they had to know that they were making up one of these falsehoods or one of these myths in a way to for, for the greater good like i can't think that they actually believed that everyone was created equal when they owned 1400 slaves between 17 of them you, that, 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 that's all I'm saying. I, I just, I, I'm agreeing with like, I think this, this falls in line with like a religion or anything else where like they knew that if, if this is how it was written, if this is what we tell people, if we are perceived as all free and equal, 
that everyone will band together and these United States of America will grow and prosper. And, and we did. Yeah. Um, but again, the, that was the, that was the, the theme of this chapter was that mm-hmm. we're always building pyramids, right? And to use your example, the pyramid of America, at least in her early days, you know, was built off of the availability of free slave labor, right? Even if you want to take it to, to a, to an extent, like who do we, who do we think about when we think about, um, you know, exploring the West or mapping out parts of the country Christopher um, or a little bit after that, uh, I was, I was, I was going more so oh, like, Clark. yeah, right. I mean, is it inconceivable to think that the clothes that they used were processed and manufactured by slave labor or that the cigarettes they smoked were grown by slave labor, right? You don't hear about any of that. You hear about Lewis and Clark discovering the West. And and, and I'm just making an example there, but the point of that was that, you know, history is not written by the people who are on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And to tie it all back to the fifth chapter, the agricultural revolution, while it has brought us the prosperity that we see today, you certainly couldn't tell a slave or even a poor farmer in medieval times that, oh, it's all going to be all good because in 2021, we're all going to be great. <laughs> you know, we're all going to be fantastic. Things are going to be better than ever for almost everybody. So just hang in there. They didn't give a shit because mm-hmm. they didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow. So um, it is a very cool way to look at history, to remember that these things that we view on a macro level that we see as positive today certainly did not come without some strife. And maybe even, you know, we were sold a bill of lies about things like the agricultural revolution and how good it was for humanity. Yeah. What I do like as I'm watching this book kind of uh, unfold or page through, however you want to say it, is that now we're getting to things that are like facts. Like it, right. it, at the first couple chapters, it was kind of loosey. And you might, I think you even said that earlier, but it was kind of, you know, loosey goosey kind of drawing from a lot of different stuff. We're looking at, you know, information from 15,000 years plus all the way back to 70,000 years. It, it's hard to, to speak in truths necessarily. And now we're seeing like, this is what happened. This is, yeah, this things is how that we, we know. Yeah. yeah. Things that we're, we're at least fairly confident about. Yeah. Um, you know, there's date ranges, but you know, we, we've narrowed in pretty close. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it's just, man, there's just so much information like ahead of us. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. So, um, next time we're going to wrap up part two, uh, the agriculture revolution with chapter seven, memory overload, excuse me, memory overload chapter eight. There is no justice in history. So, uh, looks like it's going to get a little hairy. Um, yeah, pretty excited. So appreciate you guys listening. Um, this has been a book review of Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, chapters five and six. Till next time.